0: You are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. You've heard the saying, don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk, right? Yes. You know, there are those in the in the world who act and those who don't act, there are people in this world who like to fix things and those who simply like to theorize about why we have problems. Which category are you in? Are you the ones who say, I know what the problem is? Right? <laughs> Where are you in that? Have you ever made, um, have you, are you an active person? Are you a proactive person? Are you someone who just can't sit back, or do you feel like you have to complete things and be active and do things? And I hope hope most of you, if not all of you, are fit in that category. And I think a lot of us, in one way or another, have created these to-do lists, haven't you? Uh, The the beautiful thing about phone apps is that there's like a million apps for how to prioritize your life, how to schedule your weekly or daily agenda, and all these things for a particular day or even week. Now, we have a to-do list and I remember at one point, I had so much. This one time I had, uh, for one week, I had to, oil, to get an oil change, to finish reading a book, to finish writing a paper. Uh, I had to actually fix the fridge, uh, paint the room, visit the dentist, go to the gym, and I scratched that off quickly, go to the post office, and all that, right? And the thing is, I did it all in one week. I'm not kidding. I'm not, <laughs> look, look, I'm not hot stuff or anything, but uh, after completing that, I felt like I just climbed Mount Everest. It was amazing. Don't you feel amazing, right? After completing a huge task or a bunch of things, moving on towards a goal and completing something one by one? It's awesome. At the same time, I have also been overwhelmed by these tasks. And so I would lower the bar a lot. So uh, perhaps after a day of doing nothing, I would muster up some strength and diligence to maybe um, go change the toilet roll. But here's the thing. I'll do that, and I'll feel satisfied. I'll be like, I am productive. (laughs) And because I did just that one thing, when I couldn't have, I didn't have to. I didn't need it, right? But having completed that, I felt so good that I felt like I deserved a break. <laughs> Have you ever done that? So I go, because I did one thing, I deserve the rest of the day to just indulge in Netflix and veg out. Have you guys ever been there? You liars. Yeah, we've been there. Well, Nehemiah here, we're talking about a spiritual renewal, and in this pursuit, we also found this list of things to do. Feeling of accomplishment. you got to do this. So we need to invest time in God. We need to humble ourselves. We need to separate ourselves from the world. We need to confess our sins. We need to give attention to the word God. And these things, they don't save us, but they certainly help us. And they steer us towards the one who can save us, right? That's why we do this. But here's the thing. Ultimately, spiritual renewal isn't some like product that you can or commodity that you can obtain. And despite the list of things to do, spiritual renewal can't be obtained by checking off our list, nor is it something like an event where you can just attend. As I said last week, spiritual renewal has everything to do with our relationship with God. That's what it is. Spiritual renewal has everything to do with our relationship with God. Renewal or the revitalization of our relationship with the living God can only come from the living God. Okay? The most crucial lesson we can learn is that to be spiritually renewed or revived, we must come directly to the Lord, for it can only come directly from the Lord. Does that make sense? To be spiritually renewed is not by going to some guru, it's not by reading some self-help book, it's not by doing some juice cleansing, it's not by doing anything else but going directly to the Lord, for spiritual renewal only comes from the Lord. Okay? Now, we had read verse 4 and 5. Thanks, Joe. I purposely gave him the one with a lot of names. Right? But he did well. But the main points of this sermon is taken from the entire chapter, actually, from verses 4 to 37 of chapter 9. And it begins in verses 4 or 5 with the Levites, who are the priests, they were praying. And they were calling the people, hey, join us in prayer. We must pray together. And what's beautiful is that this prayer here is recorded, which, by the way, is the longest recorded prayer mentioned in the Bible. But this prayer is specific because it leads us down this pathway to salvation. It's unique. It's not just a, an arbitrary prayer of, of just, you know, God, give me blessings. No, this is, this is the way to get saved. Now, the first part of the prayer was an acknowledgment of God's glory. That's the first part of prayer, acknowledging the glory of God. So here again, they are praying. They're confessing, they're crying out, I mean, there's desperation, you've done this before, there's brokenness, there's pain, there's suffering, perhaps, there's just a great heaviness in their approach to God, And, and similarly, when we're in that kind of situation, when we're kind of in that prayer, when we confess, we think confessing, right, has a large part of that consists of, you know, a large part of admission of sin, saying, God, I'm terrible, I've sinned. It's this idea of self-condemnation. We're crying, we're tearful, and all that stuff. We're judging our own hearts, right? We're regretting past choices, all that stuff, right? We think about who we are during those moments of despair. We think about what's happened to us. We dwell on the injustices that we've encountered, all the hardships that we're facing. But interestingly, we learn from this passage That that is not the correct way to approach God in prayer. We're not supposed to. And it's noteworthy that prayer, in this sense, confessional prayer, which is what we ought to do all the time, because when we confess, what happens? We draw near to God, right? But confessional prayer actually doesn't begin with examining ourselves. Hear me out. Confessional prayer actually doesn't begin with examining our self-worthlessness or guilt or shame or our self-condemnation. Instead, according to this passage, it begins confession begins by recounting and rehearsing the glory of God. In other words, we are to consider not who we are, but who God is. Not what we have done, but what he has done. That's what we're supposed to do. When we enter prayer, we have to first consider who God is and what He has done before anything else. And we do this because context is everything, and the right context for prayer isn't actually on how I feel about God or how I feel about myself or how I feel about my circumstances. Right context for prayer is actually centered on who God is and what He's done and where I stand in relationship to that. In other words, when we begin to pray, we're called to kind of set the stage. We're called to lay down the foundation of who we're praying to. And this prayer, just, I love it. Bookmark it. Highlight it. Don't tear it out. Just leave it there. But it holds such great theology, and it really paves the way of how we ought to pray. From verses 6 through 15, God here is addressed as you, not, not you, but you. Let me paraphrase this, okay? Essentially, this is what it is. Here's, they're saying, your name is exalted. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and the earth. You give life. You are worshiped by the heavenly hosts. You chose Abram. You kept your promise. You saw the suffering. You made the miraculous signs. You sent a name for yourself. You divide the sea. You led your people. You spoke from heaven. You gave the law. You provide bread and water. And you gave them the land. I mean, they're glorifying God. They're saying, This is what you did, God. I love that. The people were declaring and they're actually recounting before God his own glory. They're recounting his perfections, his power, his mighty acts. They're recounting why he is God and so is worthy of our affection. They're declaring God because he is the creator the life giver, the object of heavenly worship. He is the covenant maker. He is the righteous keeper. He is the deliverer, the savior, the law giver, and the provider. You see, when we want God's renewal for us, we got to stop fixating upon ourselves. Instead, fixate upon God. We must get our eyes off ourselves. Instead, look upon the glorious beauty of the Lord. You know, I've said this many times to my wife, but when a day is hard and, I, and I've just been staring at a screen or, or whatever all day, you know, just working and a lot of perhaps kind of spiritual stress and counseling difficulties, and I come home and, and I see my wife, and I say, you are a sight for what? sore eyes. You are a beauty to behold. And it makes me feel better. This is when you say All. Oh. So forced. (laughs) right. But it's true. It's true. It, It is only when we fix our eyes upon the glorious beauty of God, everything else just fades. Everything else just fades. You know what makes a marathon runner keep running? It's the next step. And it's the ability to visualize the finish line. Once you start focusing, and this is all theoretical because I would never do this. Right? Once you start focusing on your pain on your bruised and bleeding feet, on your sore legs, or fatigue, it's already over. You've already hit that proverbial wall, right? Spiritual renewal starts when we fix our gaze upon God and upon his glory and not upon us and our circumstances. We as Christians live by faith, not by circumstance. Amen? During the difficult times of my life, as it was hard, truly hard, to not focus on the circumstances, and I was just feeling the weight and the burden of the world and everything. I remember remember that time I was constantly praying, but God, you are faithful. But God, you're in control, but God, you're good. And I had to constantly say that, constantly had to say that. This happened, but God, no, no, you're faithful. This happened, No, 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 God, you are good. A bad situation occurs, no, God, but you are, you are God. You are in control. And I think we have to remind ourselves of who God is all the time. Turn to your neighbor and say this. Let's remind ourselves of who God is all the time. This is a biblical approach to prayer because we're simply acknowledging who God is by reflecting back to him all that he's done. Someone once said this to this effect, and I'm paraphrasing. He said that worship is like a mirror. We can't give God more worship We can't give God more glory. We can't illuminate God more. All we can simply do is reflect the already gloriousness of God back to Him. Like He is complete. You see, God's glory is God's glory. And no amount of your obedience or disobedience will ever change that. No amount of non-believers who try to shut up the gospel message. No No matter how many inauthentic Christians who end up damaging their faith can ever take away that which already is, the glory of God. When we worship, we're simply saying, God, this is who you are. This is who you are. So our first lesson is that we need to recount God's glory. The second point. Is that we need to recognize God's mercy in the face of rebellion. Recognize God's mercy. Know what you're being saved from. From verses 1631, there's this amazing, again, amazing this counterpoint section where it's like, kind of like a dialogue-ish. Let me again summarize this so you get what I'm saying. Again, it's like between you, meaning God, and they, meaning his people. Okay? So they, God's people. Became arrogant, stiff necked, disobedient, rebellious, and wanted to return to slavery. You were forgiving, gracious, compassionate, loving, did not desert them, even when they indulged in idolatry and blasphemy with the golden calf. But you had compassion and did not abandon them, guided them by pillar of fire and cloud, instructed them by your spirit fed them with manna sustained them in the desert gave them kingdoms prospered their families subdu- subdued their enemies filled their houses with every good thing but they disobeyed rebelled turned back their turned their backs on your law they killed your prophets committed blasphemy and incurred your judgment until they cried out to you but you heard and had compassion and had restored them They, as soon as they rested, did evil again and again and again until you judged them. But you heard their cry again and had compassion on them time after time, warning them to return to to your law. But they became arrogant, disobeyed, sinned, turned their backs on you again, became stiff-necked and would not listen. But you admonished them by your spirit warned them by your prophets, and did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You see that? That's God. And this is us. Constantly. Back and forth. Back and forth. We rebel, we disobey. God loves and forgives. We turn our backs, but God forgives. You see, it goes on and on It's amazing, this portion of prayer, it just focuses and and wants us to focus on the mercy and grace of God. It's so important to include this in our prayer. And the reason is because we oftentimes think our issues and our sins are these isolated events that only impact me, myself, and I. But little do we know that our sins take on a broader spectrum than we might think. When we think about the whole spectrum of sin in our lives and in others... You'll then be able to see the worldwide rebellion and waywardness in contrast to God's relentless mercy and love. You'll see how we have continued on down this path of pride and arrogance and unbelief in the face of God's kindness and faithfulness. It's when we see it this way that we'll begin to see our sin the way that God sees it. We have to consider the depth of God's love and mercy because that's when we'll truly begin to see the depth of our sinfulness. Let's be honest here for a second, okay? How many times have you, have you guys ever prayed? I'm assuming you have. How many, Have you guys ever repented? I'm assuming you have. But think about this for a second and be honest with yourself for one second here. When you have repented, do you do so in a way that it really didn't seem like it was a big deal? That prayer, it did not move you to tears, That prayer did not put a knot in your stomach for the pain and the transgressions that you have placed upon the Lord. There was no real emotional or spiritual torment for what you have committed. Why? Because we simply don't think our sin was bad enough. Right? But when you look at how God had lavished His mercy and tenderness, And the fact that he's constantly rescuing us, constantly protecting us, constantly saving us, constantly trying to guide us, you'll begin then to see how really evil our sins actually are. Lastly, we need to cry out to God without crying out with an excuse. There's been so much in the news these days. Aaron Hernandez, the case, the Boston bomber case, the... I think a few weeks ago, it was like the mother who killed their children and her children. and This list goes on and on, and despite all these tragic cases, it's not too often that we hear of people admitting their guilt. In fact, most guilty pleas are often plea bargains. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but plea bargains are essentially admitting responsibility to receive a lesser offense. I nervously say, as both law students, Lauren and Michael, sit in my audience. Is that correct? Yes? No? Okay. Even when you hear of other people owning up to their failures, they oftentimes seem to just kind of blame it on mitigating circumstances. And sometimes at the end of the plea or trial whatever, it almost makes it seem as if they were the victims. And quite frankly, whenever we sin, man, are we good at minimizing what we've done. Man, are we good at justifying even what we've done. But here we have in verses 32-37, that these people were crying out to God without excuse. That's what true confession is. You see, the road to spiritual renewal is a road that is absent of excuses for our sins. In verse 32, they all admit they had a problem. There is a hardship that has come upon our kings and leaders, upon priests and prophets upon the fathers and all the people from days of king of Assyria until today. It says, but then they not only admit that they've been screwing up, but here's the thing, they also admit that they deserve that trouble. That's crazy. Verse 33-35 says, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and here we go, and they say, and we have acted wickedly. How many of us are willing to say that? How many of us are willing to say, God, I, I'm, I did wrong? Continue on. It says, our kings and our princes, our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you have gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you have set before. You see what God has done for them? Lavish them. They did not, deserve, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. And Despite God's goodness, these people still rejected him. True biblical confession confession admits that we are in rebellion with God. And therefore the issues, the calamities that we face, the, the suffering, the hardships are actually well deserved. We need to stop placing God on trial for our pains. Because God is the only one who is just and who acts justly. So if we truly want renewal in our lives, we need to quit acting as if God placed trouble and hardships in our lives that we didn't deserve. Or that somehow God is an unfair God and all that suffering we're going through is someone else's fault. Now I admit, this is a hard pill to swallow, but hear me out. The fact of the matter is, not even the next breath that we take is a breath that we deserve. God has not failed us, we have failed Him. And we fail him all the time. It's time for us to stop passing the buck onto someone else and admit that our sins are ours alone. Turn to your neighbor and say this, it's not yours, it's my sins. Now say this, it's not you, it's me. (laughs) Have you ever seen someone be like, no, it's you. You know, with the knowledge that God alone is perfect, okay? With the knowledge that God alone is perfect, with the knowledge that we have sinned, and now knowing, having knowledge that we are without excuse, how can we even approach God then? On what grounds can we appeal to God? This is a hard question, but a real one too. On what basis could we as people possibly ask God to help us? This is like someone, imagine someone who's challenged you every day. They slandered your name behind your back and maybe even to your face. Their hatred for you is obvious. They will not they they have never helped you, will never help you, they have never supported you, they have refused you before and they'll refuse you again, they want nothing to do with you, but then one day, they come to you and they say, can you help me? They ask for a recommendation, they ask for help and advancement in something like some field or position, whatever it is, and you're probably thinking, have you lost your mind? Why in the world, oh Lord, I thank you for this day, I have the power, but think about it, why in the world would I even consider helping you after all that you have done to me and said about me, you have been nothing but a pain in my back, a constant headache, a perpetual torment in my life, you have never once shown me kindness, you have never shown me love, you have never once shown me even a glimpse of interest or affection, you have only looked out for yourself and have always sought to bring me down and now you come to me and you ask me for help? You must have lost your mind. That, my friends, is where we're at with God. On what possible grounds do we have to come and appeal to Him? Friends, How can a sinner come before a holy God and say, save me? How can a rebellious, self-centered, prideful person come before a sinless, righteous God and ask for restoration, ask for healing, and ask for peace? From this passage, we find that we can actually appeal to one thing. We should go before God, and here it is, humbly ask that God remember his promise. Didn't we just sing that song today? Lord, remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your promise. Remember your covenant. Verse 32 says, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. This is an appeal to God that God keeps his own promises. You see, God has made promises to his people and for all time he has never once broken a promise because what he says directly aligns with who he is. He says he is truth and so therefore there can be no lies in him. And when God promises, he keeps it. How many of you guys have broken a promise? I'll tell you right now, even as a pastor, I'll put, I'll put two hands up. I'll put, I'll, put some, I'll put some toes up too in the air. When God says that he can heal the deepest wound, fix the worst problems, rescue the lost, and resurrect the dead, he can't and he has. When he promises in John 5.24, truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, has passed from death to life. Or in Romans 10:13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There should be a little asterisk after every one verse. It's pretty much saying, I promise. I guarantee. This means that all who trust in Jesus, all who deny themselves, all who say yes to God and no to me, they're the ones who will be saved. There is no sin too great, there is no pain too deep that God cannot forgive and that God cannot heal. There is no if clause. There's no I'll save you if you become a better person. There's no I'll save you if you haven't done a bad sin like murdering or committing adultery. All who repent and call all who repent from the greatest to the least to the worst to the best all who repent call upon the name of the lord will be saved promise you see their appeal to god is that god would accomplish his already stated will in spite of them God's will cannot be thrown off by the recurring sins of the world. The people come to know God, and they come to know God, and they have absolutely nothing of and within themselves to offer as collateral for God's renewal. There's nothing that we can bring to the table. All they can come to God with is the claim of God's promise. All they can come to God with is based on, God, I'm here, so based on your faithfulness but you committed sins based on your grace. But you made so many mistakes based on your goodness. But you've rejected me based on your mercy, Father. I come before you. On your promises, God, I approach your throne of grace. Not by anything that I have done or can't do or will ever do, but simply all because of what you've done. I come to you based on your promise. That is what we're coming. That's how we're coming to the Lord. Every other religion is based on earning your salvation, but in Christianity, it's trusting in the already finished work of Christ. Based on the already completed work, the completed, already fulfilled law, the already satisfied payment for our sins. Here's the good news. The good news is not that we finally figured out how to be savable, or that we now know the secret to life. No, the good news is that God keeps his promise. And so he's come into this world in the person of his son, Jesus, who paid for our sins on the cross. The promise is that he would defeat the enemy, and he has. He promised after three days he'd be raised from dead, and he was. He was exalted to the throne of God in heaven and he has given all those who profess in his name the spirit of renewal in Christ. We now have a restored relationship with God whereas before we had a broken one. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you want to be renewed, confessing in prayer to God in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit is the path and the only path to a renewed life. It's not just reciting our failures but declaring God's victory. It's not just it's not just wallowing in our self-despair but recounting in God's glory. It's not just evaluating our sins but celebrating in God's mercy. It's not just acknowledging our failures but looking to the Lord's faithful promise of salvation. Does this make sense? And with this, this is how we need to pray. We need to pray this way to receive salvation but we also need to pray this way to remind ourselves of our salvation. Okay, let's pray. Lord, about 35, nearly, maybe even 40 years ago, a Korean man came to the States looking for a better life, wanted to turn his life around from racks to riches, wanted to give his family a better opportunity, but he was a man who did not know you. But one day, through the faithfulness of his wife, the fact that she kept on asking him to come to church, he did one day, despite the fact that he hated you, did not believe a single thing that you had to have to ever said through other people, and especially did not even believe a single word in your so-called Holy Bible. And so he fought against it for the longest time until one day, for some reason, you spoke to him. You touched him, and you broke that barrier of unbelief. And it was that day, about 30-some years ago, Lord, that He that you called him to salvation, and you saved his life. And it was that day that now this couple, centered around you, Jesus, was able to raise a family and bring their family into a saving knowledge and grace in Jesus Christ as well, and after many years of serving you and working as a, in a secular job, one day, about 16, 17 years ago, you called him into ministry. You said, feed my sheep. He said, no, I can't. Feed my sheep. I can't. I'm too comfortable with where I'm at. I'm committed to what I'm doing. God, I'm doing so much more this way. I can give more financially to you. Feed my sheep. And after several years, finally... This man said yes. And he entered into ministry, not professionally, but vocationally, for he was called by the Lord Most High. And the Lord gave him a name and says, I will give you a church, and it will be called Shining Star Community Church. There's a group of 20 or so people who have already organized and created the foundation to be the core members, and they're ready for you to take charge. And so for about 14 years ago, 2001, April, Shining Star Community Church came to be. And like many churches, yes, there were ups and downs, there were difficulties. Like many churches, there are times when it would flourish and revival would happen. But not like many churches, I believe, do we have a senior pastor like Pastor Lynn More importantly, do we have a specific vision, calling that the Lord has placed upon our church? One that's called to missions and discipleship. God has called Shining Star Community Church to be be a little different. And that's why today we celebrate the anniversary, because we refuse to be a church that will remain in status quo. We refuse to be a church that will continue to just grow for the sake of growth We desire to be a church. We have been called to be a church that will send out missions and missionaries, that will disciple all people from all walks of life, no matter where where they come from, that we believe by the power of Jesus Christ, they will come to the throne, that this church is a church that will give and give and give and serve and serve and serve and sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. And brothers and sisters, our English ministry now has this amazing opportunity to follow and to join in that wonderful, I guess, 14th chapter, if you want to call it that. I want to encourage you all now, after hearing this message and hearing what it means to actually pray and come before the Lord, to a recount of His glory to acknowledge the depth of our sin and the greatness and even greaterness of of God's mercy and grace and to be able to approach him without excuse. That we can come to God and say, Lord, thank you that you're leading us. Thank you, Father, that you have created us in this church and this ministry and these people. Thank you for the leadership. Thank you for the servants. Thank you for those who are in the limelight and those who are in the the backdrop of things, but God, we thank you, for, first and foremost, that you are here. Can we take this opportunity to pray confessionally? We don't need a high priest, for we have Christ. We don't need a secondary mediator, for we have Christ. We don't need to bridge our own gap. No, for Christ has already done that. You have God right now, and he's hearing, and he's listening. Will you come to him right now and pray to him? And more so than what's going on in your life, can we just acknowledge who he is, right? Let's just praise him. God, thank you. Father, thank you. Let's pray.